The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I finally got my North Carolina license plate on my car. So after three trips to the North Carolina License Agency, (laughs) after hours in line, and after several hundred dollars, I feel warmly welcomed by North Carolina. (laughs) They gave me the three customary options to put on my license plate, and I chose In God We Trust, which you may know since 1957 has also been printed on our currency. I I don't carry physical money very much anymore, so I almost forgot that. But our coins and our bills say, In God We Trust, which is really a rather bold and potentially ironic statement, isn't it? to put on the very currency we hold, in God we trust. Now we know that money can easily become a source of hope and security and status, which it was never intended to become. David Pollison writes, I think insightfully, idols counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character. Now money and material blessings are a good gift but they can cross a line where they become an idol of the heart and a counterfeit God. And we can start to look at money for the things that only God can provide. Safety, security, stature, well-being. In today's passage, Jesus is going to speak very directly to us here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount to point chinks in the armor of the safety, security, and status that we could imbue in money and to intend, instead, show us the God we can trust. Now, I'll warn you, the verses that our brother read, verses 19 through 24, are the hard ones to hear. But in God's grace, verse 25 begins with the word, therefore, which means Jesus has not given us two separate teachings. He's given us one teaching. And the point of his teaching is to show us the God who we really can trust. So let's begin in verse 19. And here we'll see letter A on the notes. Lay up heavenly treasures, not earthly. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up is a strong Greek word. It's thesorizo. And it means to treasure something. So actually a good translation would be, do not treasure earthly treasures. That, of course, means it's not wrong to save money. It's not wrong to own material possessions. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, that we have a responsibility to provide for our parents as they age, which means we must save up for that. Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 9, tells us to go and learn from the ant how he stores up in advance, that we should learn something about saving and accruing possessions wisely. But here the warning is not about accruing or saving or owning possessions. Here the warning is about treasuring earthly treasures. Where the line crosses from a stewarded gift to a treasured idol of the heart. He'll tell us why that's not wise in the end of verse 19. Let's keep reading. Do not treasure earthly treasures. Why? Because there moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. The point's very simple, isn't it? Earthly treasures are inherently unstable. But many times we can forget this. 
I saw a commercial not that long ago by a financial investment company where they claim if you invest with their company, it'll be like walking on a green line, a green line that will never fail. You just stay on the green line and everything works out well. And I thought, I don't know a lot about the stock market, but I'm not sure it's that secure that you could stay on the green line the whole time without any worries or troubles. The point of verse 19 then is a very simple one. Moth and rust can destroy the things you save and thieves can cause them to be taken. Therefore, you should not treasure earthly treasures because they're inherently unstable. But not only is there something we should avoid treasuring, there's something worth treasuring. So now verse 20. Instead, but lay up for yourself, so treasure treasures in heaven. And the reason because there neither moth nor rust destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Treasure heavenly treasures. What are heavenly treasures? Well, don't forget where we are in the Bible. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is presenting the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, to treasure heavenly treasures would mean to treasure the kingdom's values, the heavenly kingdom's truths, for example. You could begin by investing in the Beatitudes. Invest in being poor in spirit, mourning over sin, having purity of heart, hungering for righteousness, and having a heart to be a peacemaker. These are investments that are heavenly, that are eternal. Craig Blomberg writes, spiritual treasure should be defined as broadly as possible. Anything a believer can take with them beyond the grave. So the heavenly values of the kingdom of heaven and surely the central prize is the king himself worthy of all our treasuring. But of course you could think, well, what difference does it make what I treasure most? And look in verse 21. Here's the reason. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In our house, we have one of those thermostats that is also a thermometer. When you go and look at it on the panel, it tells you two things. The temperature it currently is, like a thermometer, and the temperature that it's allegedly moving towards, the thermostat. That's how a thermometer and a thermostat works. Did you notice that Jesus does both in verse 21? Did you see it? Where your treasure is, what the thermometer tells you, is also where your heart will be. It's where the thermostat will take you. See, treasure does something very interesting. Where you put your treasure, you put your heart. So if you were to ask, well, why does it really matter what I treasure? Because what you treasure takes along your desires and eventually it shapes everything about you. See, verse 19, you may not ever say it out loud, but you could object in your heart. And when Jesus says, well, thieves break through and steal and moth rusts and corrupts, you could think to yourself, well, Okay, Jesus, wealth is unstable, but life is unstable. Everything's uncertain. What's the big deal if I treasure things on earth? Why would that really matter? And that's why verse 21 is so insightful. Because if you treasure things on earth, you'll put your heart there too, and then you won't be able to live for the kingdom of heaven. What you treasure is where you put your heart, and it moves there like a thermostat, changes a thermometer before you know it. There's a delay in which your heart eventually catches up to the investments you've been making. And that delay is imperceptible. And that's why in verses 22 through 24, 
Jesus uses a simple but incredibly profound illustration, which is letter B, C straight. So look now in verses 22 through 24. I'll read through it and then I'll try to do my best to help us understand this section that I really, really love. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So what do those verses mean if we stop there at verse 23? It's really simple. I'm not an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, but as I understand it, your eye perceives light and it reflects through it so that you can then make decisions. You walked in here this morning, there was light illuminating the room and so through your eye, you were able to maneuver wisely based on your ability to perceive it and not trip over the pew. So you can move where you wanted to go based on your eye's vision. If your eye is unhealthy, you can't do that. But here's the thing about if your eye is unhealthy, you're the last person to know it. So I wear glasses occasionally, I wear contacts more normally. When I can't find my glasses, I always ask my wife, honey, where's my glasses? So that I can find my glasses. You need glasses to find your glasses. When you take them off, you can't find them, but you know they're not on. But contacts don't work that way. When you're wearing contacts, You don't perceive that you're wearing them. And if they're not the right prescription, you don't realize you're not correctly seeing the world. For a while, I had the wrong prescription of contact. And when Steph and I were out, she would be able to read things that were a far distance, and I thought she was a superhuman. In reality, I had the wrong prescription. When you have the wrong prescription, you don't know it. Have you ever been around someone colorblind and they tell you the grass is red? and you think they're insane, (laughs) they see everything wrongly. But if they buy a contact lens, they even make some that correct color hues. But the key is this. Here's the point of Jesus' illustration. Some sins are sins that you commit externally to yourself, and you know you're doing them. But other sins are eye sins. Because you see life through them, You don't even know you have them. You're not aware that your entire perspective of reality is colored by these sins. And materialism is one of them. It's an eye sin. And because of it, you see everything differently. So notice again, verse 22. If the eye is healthy, your whole body's full of light. But notice verse 23. If your eye is bad, the whole body's bad, and how great is the darkness, meaning you don't even know that you have this very blindness because it is the only perspective through which you see life. In fact, let's be honest. This is one of those sins that the more confident we are that we don't have it, the more likely it is that we do. Let me give some examples. When it comes time to choose a job and you're weighing, is this a job that is fruitful, that it will make a difference in the world, that it will be a better thing for other people, you may move that three or four rungs down the ladder and just consider how much am I going to get paid? Is it pay well? Because that's what an eye sin does. It causes you to make a decision through that lens. Over the years of pastoring, I once had a lady come to me who told me that something her business was doing was very unethical, and she was struggling with it. But she admitted that for years she knew about this, but didn't want to ask any questions because they paid her very well. That's how ISINs work. You don't want to know what you don't want to know because you see all of life through a certain lens. 
Wealth not only affects the way we work, a love of materialism affects the way we have relationships with others. In fact, all of us are raised in a certain sort of culture in regards to wealth, the possession of it or the lack of it, and that tends to color the way we view all other relationships. We view people who we think belong in our social circle, and then we view people who think we, we don't have access to in our social circle. We may in fact view much of our life through something we're trying to achieve, or at least to pretend that we have, because wealth causes us to see things a certain way. In fact, all of us are in this circle because every one of us lives in an era and in a place in which we might be among the most wealthy generation of people who have ever lived on this planet. And yet the very fact that we think there's no way that greed or materialism is a struggle for us proves that it is an eye sin that pervades the way you see everything. When we serve money, we cannot serve God. So look now in verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Don't you love how Jesus is not afraid to put matters in binary terms? <laughs> Most of the time we wanna have multiple shades of gray. Our Lord never struggles to say there is a this or there is a that. So verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Because money is an eye sin, it can cause us to look wrongly at our own success and the perceived failures of people around us. In fact, if we have a certain amount of possessions or material blessings, and all of us do, then that means there is an economic stratosphere that we think of as below us, and if we're not careful, we may think of them as beneath us. A few years ago, I was out to lunch with my wife and kids and with my parents, and while we were out to eat at the restaurant, there was a table that was about two tables away from us, kitty corner to us, and at that table, there was another family, and they had all gathered for what looked like a birthday party. But at the party, the person who was the dad and the husband got into a fight physically with the, the wife and the mother-in-law. And the police were called. And the police got there very quickly and the husband was dragged away and he was dragged outside of the restaurant into the police car. And the image that I can't get out of my mind was this four-year-old girl crying on her birthday, screaming out loud, I just want my daddy. And while she was crying that, I thought this, had I grown up in that house, what might I be like today? Many things that we assume are the result of our effort and hard work and ability are actually the result of God's great grace that we have no entitlement to. But because money is an eye sin, you might start to think that people could be as successful as you if they just worked as diligently as you and did all the things that you did the right way, when in reality, you're being blind to the tremendous grace of God that you enjoy. That's how I sins work. In fact, it works the other way too. We all have people that we think are more wealthy or successful than us, and we could inordinately be in awe of them and put them on a pedestal. Or we could secretly hate them <laughs> and think that whatever they did to get there must have been unethical because there's no way someone would be more successful than me. I sins cause us to see everything wrongly. 
But to make a fuller and more direct example, I want to read to you a a small section of a book. This book is called Onward, and it's written by Russell Moore. He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the SBC. Uh, It's a really pretty good book overall, but in the latter half of the book, he shares a story that's very, very helpful. Russ Moore was preaching at a church in the South, and he was working through 1 Corinthians 7. And in 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible talks about some sensitive matters, but it does so in a very direct way. It talks about adultery and sex and marriage and where those things should fit and where they shouldn't fit. And in the sermon, Moore was preaching through that. The passage, 1 Corinthians 7, says, if you have passion for physical intimacy, it is good for you to marry. And so in the sermon, Russell Moore told all the parents there that you shouldn't pressure your children into long engagements that might actually cause them trouble in this area of obedience, but you should instead encourage them to get married. After the sermon, Russell Moore was coming down and four people came up to him. Two of them were a middle-aged couple and sheepishly a few feet behind them were a couple in their 20s named Chad and Tiffany. And the parents said this to Russell Moore, Pastor Moore, you just don't understand. I mean, my son is in medical school and Tiffany here is in her graduate work and they've been dating since the eighth grade. And the most important thing for us is that they have financial security. So we don't want them to really get married now. We want them to achieve all their degrees, get far along in their career, and then have financial security. That's really the key thing for them. And then Russ Moore, who apparently is much more gutsy than I am, said this to them. (laughs) He looked at them and said, well, there's an exception to every situation. But then he looked at Chad and Tiffany in the eye, the 20-year-olds, and said, I'm just so glad that Chad and Tiffany have remained sexually pure this whole time. Right, Chad? (laughs) After several moments of awkward silence, the middle-aged man started coughing and saying, well, honey, it's really getting late. And Chad looked the happiest to be leaving, and so did Pastor Moore. But Pastor Moore concluded this at the end. Could it be that these parents, like many parents in contemporary evangelical Christianity, have actually found disobedience to God in sexual sin to be a less awful possibility than financial ruin. You see? You see, money is an eye sin. It causes your perception to be so confused that you no longer can make clear moral assessments. You can no longer see wrong as wrong and right as right because you start to view everything through the lens of materialism. Now, That's the hard half of the sermon, (laughs) verses 19 through 24. But praise God, it moves to a therefore. And the therefore in verse 25 is now going to give us the good news. There is a God that we look to for safety and security that can't provide it, and that's materialism. But instead, there is a God who can be trusted for safety and security. So now look with me in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and approve why we need not give into gripping worry. Jesus will give two illustrations to show how God can care for us. 
He gives an illustration of God's provision of safety and security, and then he gives an illustration of God's provision of status and well-being. So look again in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. Let me give a quick grammatical correction, because I know a lot of you here this morning carried the King James Bible with you. Unfortunately, the King James writes, take no thought, which is very confusing, because that would imply you shouldn't think at all about your, your planning or your savings. That's not what the word means. The Greek word is merimnao, and it means to be unduly worried or wrongfully concerned. So do not be unduly worried or wrongfully concerned about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And when you feel like the world is falling apart and your security is slipping, here's what you should do. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. So birds are industrious, they're not lazy, they try to build nests and they try to catch worms, but it's actually God's providence that provides for them everything they need in order to survive. But here's the good news for you, if you can call God Father. Look at the end of verse 26. Are you not of more value than they? So if the heavenly Father has set up the meteorological conditions for his birds to be well-fed, He cares about his children in Christ infinitely more. Therefore, why would we feel shaky worry over our security when our father has told us we're of more value than the things he regularly provides for? There's another encouragement, and that's in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, notice by the means of anxiety, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now again, we have a grammatical complexity here. Let me just try to walk through it quickly. Do you know, um, well you probably know what an idiom is. An idiom is a phrase that we use in a culture to convey something metaphorically. But if you were to translate it into another language, it makes no sense, for example. If English is not your first language, and you were over my house, and I said, man, last week was so busy, I was flying by the seat of my pants all week, and you didn't know English, You might want to borrow my pants and wonder (laughs) what they're capable of doing because you wouldn't know what the idiom means. Now the Bible's full of idioms that when we go to translate it, we have to be careful that we don't lose what they mean. Here the idiom is this. If I was to read it literally, it says, who can add a cubit to his stature? A cubit, perhaps you know in the Bible, is 18 inches. It's from your elbow to the top of your hand. Who can add 18 inches to his stature? And then the question is, what does Jesus mean? Is he being literal? Is he saying who by worry can make themselves 18 inches taller? Or or is it an idiom that means who by worry can add 18 inches to their stature so that you're more important? Or is it simply a metaphor that means who by worry can add extra length to their life? Well, the answer is whichever of those three options it is, not a single one of those three can you successfully accomplish the goal through the means of worry? But if you were to ask me which of the three I think he means, I think it's the middle one. I think Jesus is saying, who can make their stature better through their worry? And the reason I think he's talking about stature is because in the verses that follow, he'll talk about the array of the lilies and the glory of Solomon. So I think he's talking about the stature that you can earn through worry. But here I want to draw your attention to those three words, by being anxious. 
Have you noticed that anxiety does not produce anything good in your life? One of the older saints in my church up north used to come to me and say, Pastor, worry is like a rocking chair. I spend a lot of time there, but I never get anywhere. (laughs) But Harvard said something similar in 2017. I was reading the Harvard Health publication, and here's what they wrote. Research on the physiology of anxiety-related illness is still young, but there's growing evidence of the mutual influence between emotions and physical functioning. Nearly two-thirds, according to Harvard, of the 40 million adults in America who have anxiety disorders are women. And what people with these disorders have in common is an unwarranted fear that interferes with daily life that can produce itself in physical symptoms such as pain, nausea, weakness, or dizziness that have no apparent cause. Harvard then concludes, anxiety has not only caused many chronic physical illnesses, including heart disease, chronic respiratory disorders, gastrointestinal conditions, but at the bottom, these physical symptoms can become worse, and in some cases, they can cause premature death. So Harvard is saying, through anxiety, your life can actually be diminished. Not only will it fail to be improved. And yet when Harvard was asked, how do we fix it? Their answer was, we don't know. We think we can manage the symptoms, but we can't get to the root problem underneath the symptoms. Do you know why? Because worry is a worship problem. It's that we have the wrong God. And if you worship the wrong God it will never do what you want it to do. Money, materialism, cannot give you safety. It cannot give you security. And it cannot give you status. But here's where you can find it. Let's keep reading in verse 28. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Here's my favorite thing about the two examples Jesus gives. He gives the birds and then he gives the flowers. And when he gives the birds, I think, well, God takes care of the birds, but they still have to fly and they still have to look for worms. But when he says God takes care of the flowers, do you know what the flowers do for their success? Nothing. They have absolutely nothing that they can do to make sure that they are clothed and that they thrive. They can do absolutely nothing. And in your life, you will at times be in one of those two scenarios. You will have times where you are asking God to help you with the limited ability you have, like a bird, go and build the nest and catch the worms. But perhaps some of you have lived long enough to know there are moments in your life where you're in a situation that you can do nothing, nothing. And in that situation, remember that neither can the flowers, and yet God makes sure they grow. So the end of this verse, be moved by the phrase, will he not much more clothe you? God's love for his general creation is deepened infinitely by his fatherly care for those who are his in Christ. So because he's a trustworthy father, we continue in verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious. Do not ask about your security. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? Your stature. 
Verse 32, the Gentiles seek after these things. People who are unbelievers seek after these things. But notice the end of verse 32, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Thus, if God is your Father, then you're freed. And you're freed to do this in verse 33. You are freed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then those things, security, stature, those will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Is he saying you'll never have any problems? No, look at the end of verse 34. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. There's still trouble, but you don't have to worry about the theoretical because the Father owns the future and is with you in the present. So the question then is how can I know the Father that way? Because this passage is assuming that you know God as your Father and that that makes a practical difference in your heart's temptation to look to other places for security and status. How can you know God that way? And let me quote to you one of my favorite verses in the New Testament about God's love for us pertaining poverty and riches. It is 2 Corinthians 8, verse nine. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. In today's passage, the very things that we're worried about, clothing, food, status, think of how Jesus denied himself those things, gave up his riches so that through his poverty you might become rich. What does it mean to be poor? It means to not have possessions or security. Jesus, halfway through his ministry, said this, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In this passage, we worried about clothing, but do you remember when Jesus was brought to the cross, how they stripped him of all of his clothing, taking away security and dignity so that he would be nailed and numbered among the sinners? See, Jesus was made poor. Why? What did the verse just say that I read? 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He who was rich became poor for your sake so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up his richness so that he could take our poverty and give us his richness. You see, counterfeit aspects of God's identity and character are always shown in idols. It's easy to look to materialism for safety and security. But the next time you're faced with the temptation to look to wealth or materialism for safety or status, instead, look to the cross and see the infinitely rich son of God who had no security. See the infinitely wealthy son of God who had no status and see him intentionally carrying those worst fears of your heart in his body so that you would never be exposed to them so that he could give his richness to you. So let me tell you this morning, since Jesus purchased both security and status with his blood, you don't ever need to worry about either. Why would you worry about security when you're a child of the Father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and sets your feet on the solid rock? Why would you worry about status when the heavenly Father puts his robe on your back and his ring on your finger? The security and status that we look to in the wrong places is found in the presence of Jesus. 
Can I tell you a scripture verse that I've met very few Christians who know the whole verse? Hebrews 13, verse five, the second half says this. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Do you know the first half? Almost nobody does. Hebrews 13, five, Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What does the first half of the verse say? Beloved, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have because Jesus has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You see, it's the presence of Jesus that takes away the wrong hopes of security and status in places that they can't be found. Security and status are not found in possessions, they're found in a person, a person who embodies the kingdom of God. So remember this morning, if you have Christ as savior, you have your heavenly father as provider, and that means you can pray Romans 8.32, which says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him provide us graciously all good things? If God did not spare his own son and you trust in Christ, then you can trust in him for the safety and security that can't be found anywhere else. So in Matthew 6, the king tells us about the God we can trust. Let's pray together this morning. Dear God, I thank you for a clear and short passage that tells us a truth that could be very difficult to actually see in our own lives. A truth that though we will be tempted to find security and stature in our possessions and in our wealth and in our careers, we should instead find security and status in the perfection of Jesus Christ granted to us through faith. Perhaps someone this morning for the first time is realizing that they have had an eye sin that has blinded them to everything. And perhaps this morning you have removed the veil from their eyes so that they see the glory of God, not in possessions, but in a person, in Jesus Christ. May they this morning, simply in faith, call out to him for salvation. And may they experience the safety and security of their eternal soul, whatever trouble they experience in this world. Lord, those of us who know God as Father, Help us to realize what a blessing it is that the one who takes care of the birds and takes care of the lilies has given us more value. And that value has been conferred on us as a gift of grace. It is not value that we earn because we are actually all unrighteous and fall short of the glory of God. It is value that is granted to us because of the infinite perfection of the perfect son, Jesus Christ. So thank you, Lord, that Jesus takes on his body our unrighteousness, but then we are enrobed and clothed with his righteousness through faith. And may that same faith grow in us so that when Jesus provokingly says, oh, you of little faith, we would be reminded, God, help me to believe. Help me to believe in the goodness of my heavenly father and his wisdom for my life and his provision for my actual needs and remind me today that he loves me and that he cares for me. So free us from anxiety and free us from a sinful way that we try to find in other places what can only be found in you. In your son's name I pray, amen.
You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.